Welcome to Living in the Matrix. I'm Jonathan, and I'm left of center. And I'm Rich, and I tend to lean a little bit more to the right. But the bottom line is, is together we try to look for the balance of what it means to be human in today's world. Humanity built philosophy as a necessity to understand the same way that we had like built religions and things like that. But now that we're drowning in information, the new philosophy is action. And somebody mm-hmm. gave me that concept <laughs> the other day, and I was like, I Hold love that. On. It's a great Hold on there. Yeah. Yeah. We gotta run that one over. <clears throat> so like let's it. get started. Let's uh so uh, welcome everybody. This is Living in the Matrix. Uh I am Jonathan. This is Rich. Say hello, Rich. Hey everybody. And we are now on video. We are so stoked. If you're listening to on the podcast on any one of the channels, you can also see us on YouTube. Uh, and we're so much enjoying this. This is so much fun doing this and meeting really super cool people. Today I've invited Chris, Dr. Chris Lee. I'll let him kind of give a little bit of an intro, but his stuff on Instagram and I don't know if you're on TikTok or any other channels, but you are going to love his stuff. He's super interesting. He talks about mental health really freely, understands a ton of really good ideas on how to increase your mental health. And so welcome, Chris. Uh, Say hello. Hello, everyone. I am profoundly <laughs> excited to have these conversations. And yeah, awesome. all the socials, all the things, all the stuff, it's all floating out there into the social land of Lord knows what. So Chris, you're a doctor. What What is your practice? So I am currently not in practice. Okay. Um, and I actually never went into practice, which is like kind of like a part of the story. Um, okay. that we dive into. But um, yeah, currently not in practice. I own a couple separate businesses now. And oh, I work nice. as a consultant full-time. Um, I'm a science advisor for a couple startup companies and a couple neuroscience labs. And it's been delightful, but this is definitely not where I thought I would be. But you definitely went down the road of neuroscience. Why that? That's such a unique side, especially yeah. with what's happening today in today's world. Yeah. So a lot of a lot of life happened to me about six years ago, and I'll, I'll start to explain and share some of this story. Um, the reason that I went into neuroscience is that the standard, hey, let's just breathe through this, let's talk about it with the therapist, time heals all, did not work for me whatsoever. Like made things worse, it felt impractical, or maybe I just didn't have the skill set to go do that. But the reason those things were necessary in my life is six years ago, as I'm going through my doctorate and I'm you know, going through the motions of burnout and stress, and they just kick the snot out of you no matter what you're doing with it, life gave me a different trajectory. And have you ever heard the don't listen to the whispers, you get the screams type of thing? Hmm. Yeah. 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 So I'd been getting whispers for like the first year of my doctorate that's like, you know, is this, are you sure you want to do that? And I always thought that it was fear and resistance and everything else. Then they started to get louder. And mm-hmm. I think we all kind of experienced this thing. And I think we experience it so much that I actually named it something called white ceiling syndrome, that if you mm-hmm. ignore it for long enough, like the moment that you go horizontal and try to go to sleep, suddenly all the voices come up and you're staring at the ceiling and just everything's coming up is, is this where you want to be? Is this your life purpose? And all that. And for me, that voice really kicked up six years ago. And I, like I think a lot of people, just shoved it deep down inside where I put that extra slice of pizza and dessert far, far away. Why did you do that? I just didn't believe it. 
at, at the go. I was like, you know what? Like, I'm, I'm going to have a good life if I continue this. I'm going to mm-hmm. finish school. I'm going to open a practice. I'll have the 2.5 dogs, the 1.6 kids, the white picket fence, you know, all the things. Like, I'm going towards something good is what mm-hmm. I wanted. It looked like stability. And I was like, why would I ever give stability up is like the thought that runs through my head. But it was However, stability as a theory. It's stability as you do these things. Correct. People tell you this. Science tells you this. Your parents, your family are telling you you're going to be fine. But in the back of your mind, you're realizing it's not your true journey. That's exactly – yeah, that was exactly it. Uh, so when life flipped around and said, all right, we're going to change it for you. You've got some purpose to go live out. In a matter of six months, I got hit by my car riding a bike sent to the hospital, internal lacerations, bucket handle fracture. Pretty messed up. Two weeks later, I lost my dad to suicide mm. out of nowhere. Unexpectedly. Sorry, out of the blue. Thank you. Um, it's rough. It's still rough sometimes. And I'm fully in this space now where I can- What year was it. this? Um, this was 2016. And about six months after my dad died, I found out that I was going to be a dad. And shortly after that, I was a single dad with my one-year-old daughter and trying to figure out what to do at 25 years old with my kid. And no future anymore, no stability, no anything. Like, let's make sure that I can get her food. Let's make sure that I can try to finish school. Like, I went into complete survival mode suppress, depress, just basically make it through. And was there a bride or wife in there or was it just a girlfriend? No, it was a, it was a girlfriend. Um, and we had recently broken up because I was not in a space where I was like, Mm -hmm. yeah, like this is not a good time. And we, we'd only been dating for like a short period of time. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah. And then she, she took a different path and a different trajectory Mm -hmm. as well, which is not my story to tell, but suddenly there I was with, yeah, my daughter um, trying to figure some of these things out and I kid you not I have never been so terrified in my entire life I understand that fear I want to validate that and speak to that because 10 years ago I lost my kids my house and my first wife in one weekend and my job oh my and gosh when your life is torn apart like that it's rough inside especially as a man it's like we're the providers so i I empathize with you because that must have been a crumbling moment of kind of like plus this story you have about what you're doing i mean it's like yeah i empathize with that so that must have been tough it was brutal and uh it's not like i was you know at home or you know close to home so that my mom could come help or anything like Mm -hmm. that or that i could stop school to go get a job so I was just basically like, okay, let me like finance this thing out. So if I get formula or if I get diapers and I just pay the rent, I can, you know, give myself, you know, $12 a week basically to go mm-hmm. to Aldi's, get a can of sardines and some black beans. And I was eating that for like a while just to make sure that I could like budget and survive. Um, it was grueling. So you used to have I- kind of budget in place? Cause I sure as hell am not, I've not been forced to that kind of scenario. How was that dealing with that kind of budgetary crunch and that kind of day to day and week to week kind of, you know, dietary and other kinds of crunch. It's terrible. Um, you know, it, 
I went from the basics of like, okay, like, you know, I'm a 20 year old something and I can kind of do basically whatever. And in the matter of, you know, months and then a year after my daughter was born, it was suddenly like, okay, wait a second. I got a whole lot of adulting that I got to do. And like, I can't quite go snag a normal nine to five job because I'm in, you know, a 35 plus hour doctorate plus clinic hours, plus this, plus my tiny human that I got to take care of, make sure that she's getting her naps. Like I, I look back now and somebody said, man, you, you got your thirties at like 24 and all within three, three weeks of it. And I was like, that was the option because like the, the thing that kept playing in my head that, you know, was kind of the mantra. I was like, nobody's coming to save you. And as negative as it might seem like looking back on that, like that was the mantra that I needed because, you know, I, I had to claim responsibility for actions, thoughts, intentions, and where I was currently at. And then all the while working through worthiness and self-sabotage and self-hatred to say like, you know, God, the universe, whatever you choose to believe in something larger than yourself, like I'm not, I don't believe I'm being punished, right? Like that whole thing. Cause sometimes it felt like that too. And just, working my way through some of those things mentally, but it's a grueling process and it's just, do you think you were in de- Do you think you were in depression? That is such a good question. So at the time, you know, I was, I was seeing a therapist and mm-hmm. they were asking me like, you know, how are you? How are you doing? And I was like, I don't know. Like, I feel like I should be so much worse than I am right now. Mm-hmm. But I think I had been at such a level of overwhelm that I just completely dissociated from the moment. So I don't know if I was in depression. Once I graduated and I knew I was going to be like kind of okay at that point, that's where I was like on the yo-yoing of like get a lot of things done and then get like nothing done and then get a lot of things done and get nothing done. Um, But yeah, I think for a moment there I was was depressed. Do you think that, I mean, it might've been just cortisol levels coursing through your body. You don't really notice it, right? When you're like on the battlefield, you know, you don't ask your troops if they're depressed. They really don't give a damn at that stage. It's almost like fight or flight, right? It was, it was survival. So like I, I knew I, if I really, really needed to, like, you know, my mom would probably welcome me back into the basement with open arms. Mm -hmm. I could not get myself to like believe in that narrative whatsoever, like failure wasn't an option. It wasn't like, okay, mm-hmm. I, I did my, my first three years of school and then I got five more years to go. Like I'm not going to like stop. Like I, I cannot stop this investment because like mm-hmm. school's not easy for me. Um, and especially once I finished up my doctorate and then I went back for additional continuing education in neuroscience for an additional three years, it was like, everybody's like, man, you must be so smart. And I'm like, it's not easy for me. Like I, everybody's like, Oh, you, you're so smart. I'm like, I just, I'm stubborn. I think is what it is. I think I'm super, super stubborn, but that narrative in my head, like it's not worth losing as much as it is to like hurt winning type of thing that just kept going over and over and over again. Do you know what's, that's funny. You just bring that up because you think at the level of PhD, you think about all the professors, whether it's an MD or a JD or somebody who's teaching, you know, uh, philosophy at Stanford. What's amazing about that is they are, are very brilliant people, but would you, would you think that it's, it's more stubbornness of just getting it done as opposed to, and, and actually grinding it out as opposed to just pure um, academic brilliance? Is that really what gets people through it? And maybe that, because yeah. one of the things that keeps coming up in today's society is, 
And I, I lean to the right. So one of the ways we introduce our podcast is Jonathan leans a little bit to the left. I lean a little bit to the right. And I feel like a lot of these academics just they're mirror reflections of themselves and their echo chambers of ideas mm. that they've been told again and again and again. And they just go through it like sheep as opposed to really digging in and creating new ideas and new thought processes. Tell me what you think about that in terms of a reality or not. Am I, am I blowing smoke here or am I onto something? No, I don't think so. I think that, so I think we are all a massive result of our environment, right? So uh, a carpenter only has a hammer and that's all they get to use. So everything's a nail type of thing, right? If, if you look at the vacuum of somebody that is in academics, whether a professor or just in a research lab all day, the characteristics and the repetitions of what they go through just purely through action eventually start to solidify as like thought patterns and mental models and emotional orientations too. And you can kind of see that like consistently across the board that a lot of these scientists just have these very like specific characteristics and it's a part of neuroplasticity, right? So the brain is adapting to the external environment and it starts to read, Oh, social cues are not as important as like mental refinery. So we're going to sharpen that and we're going to get rid of like all of your social capacity so we can push all of that bandwidth into what's actually providing value to us. So we want to lubricate what we have to use a lot and we have to like maintain things over here, but like not as much because the brain's a very expensive organ to run. It's 3% of your biomass, but consumes 30% of your calories. So all of these things are going in and it really wants efficiency. So depending on these different environments that you put yourself into, and this is why community, socialization, all of these things are so wildly important because I don't think that there is such a thing as like sameness. I don't think there's such a thing as, oh, everything's just being maintained. I think things are growing or they're dying. And I want to be with people that are going to push and inspire me, even if they make me wildly uncomfortable. Um, whether that's books, if you can't into get into masterminds and things like that, podcasts are free out there. Like for me back in the day when I was broke as heck, I went to Goodwill with like four bucks on Tuesdays because I could get quarter books. So I'd go there and I'd snag every personal development book I could for four bucks and it'd last me a week or two. And then I'd refresh and start it back up again. And it's just putting yourself into those repetitions, into those habits that you know are going to refine you towards whatever skill set that you want. So to get back to like your original, I think, yes. <laughs> wow. Um, you know what I was thinking of when I was thinking of your idea of white ceiling syndrome and that's kind of those thoughts that kind of go back and forth. I think that's like a Sunday uh, scary. What do they call it? Scary Sunday scaries. Sunday scaries, right? And yeah. Yeah, you, you have that process. But until you get to the root cause of what's getting you there – you're never going to do it. And you still, you go through it. And what, 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 what we do to ourselves is you, you, you go through Monday and then you realize, oh, it wasn't that bad after all. And really it wasn't because they say 94% of what we worry about doesn't actually come to fruition. But then, Absolutely. you know, you keep, you go to the weekend, you have too much alcohol, um, which doesn't help the entire psyche. And then you wake up or, or you, you, it's Sunday again and you're having the Sunday scaries again and you never get to the root cause, right? Yeah. And it's just these looping patterns over and over again. And like you guys, your podcasting, I'm like living in the matrix. Like a huge part of that is just uh, Neil Donald Walsh um, conversations with God. And then, you know, looking at these hard questions that you can invite back to yourself. So Neil, Neil Donald Walsh, when he has these conversations on like a yellow legal pad, he's asking those conversations to something like larger than themselves. 
what if all of those questions got mirrored back to the self? And then that same concept of like, all right, we're living inside of the matrix. There is uh, the, the old adage, you know, a fish is the last one to realize that it's in water until it is. And then once you know what medium you're participating in, once you know, you know, socially, mentally, emotionally, all of these different things, you can suddenly start to analyze rules about that. And once you have rules, the next thing we practically do is learn how to break rules, right? And that, for a lot of us, is how we learn to escape the matrix. That's it. He well, that's the hero's journey. That's almost the, uh, uh, shoot, what is the dad whose son leaves in scripture, Rich? I'm completely Prodigal son. Prodigal son. That's a prodigal son story. He was the one that actually did it. He broke all the family rules. Mm-hmm. And that's how you create new stories is someone has to break away. I think it's evolution. Yeah. Right. I, I think yeah. there's a part of that that is like we we create the refinement over and over again of expectations, meeting reality, building mm-hmm. trust. And that becomes the loop until we create mental, emotional blindness to that thing because we expect it so much. If I take this pen, it's going to yeah. fall every time I drop it every single right. time. And we do that with physical laws, but we do that mentally and emotionally mm-hmm. hundreds of times per day as well. And eventually it's like, okay, there's no way that I'm going to expect anything differently. And then you've got another layer of unconscious processing that's occurring, another layer, another layer. And peeling back that onion, it's an infinite process, mm-hmm. I think. So back to your to your uh, when you were hitting what you felt like was rock bottom. Yeah. What made you turn around or say, oh, I'm gonna go that way? What made you take a new course? It it was my daughter. Um over and over again. Like I, what's your daughter's name? Her name's Phoenix. Oh my oh, great gosh. Name. Oh yes. my gosh. Are you kidding me? She's a BA. She's fantastic. You too. I, That's amazing. Oh my yeah. God. So she, she kind of, she kind of named herself. I don't know how to, so I'm like a super scientific guy, but like I had a dream that I had met her, um, wow. which is kind of like a whole story that we can get into uh, here in a second. But um, yeah, it, it was her. Every time I would, be so exhausted every time I'd be doing this every time I'd be like I'm so broke it was always like but is is this the life that she deserves <laughs> and a lot of that like you know created you know different levels of shame inside of me that I got to process but it kept me weirdly motivated when I was 25 and didn't know what to do it kept me going to classes kept me finishing boards and and doing everything else outside of that and all I wanted to do is just give her the life that she deserved And the fastest path I realized was to not go into practice. It was to gamble on myself, but I couldn't just gamble like small hands. I had to go all in. If you want to take the island, burn the boats. Um, And that was what I did. Never went into practice, opened the consulting firm, didn't even know what consulting was, opened the media company, didn't even know what media was, started doing executive coaching, started doing, you know, principal uh, work and venture capital. And, you know, six years later, here we are thriving. What do you say to yourself when you got your first client? When I got my first client, my first ever client. That's a big moment. That's like one of those moments where you're like, Oh shit, things are actually beginning to work. This is a really weird story. I've had like a lot of like things happen, I guess. Um, so back when my daughter was like six months old, I was so upset and so frustrated and so whatever that I would take those Goodwill books and I would go to Waffle House and the apartment that I was living in, um, 
was right next to the Waffle House. So I could literally just walk there. And my daughter's mom was, was still in the apartment at that period of time. But I would go there from like basically 10 p.m. until like 3.30 in the morning. I'd just sit there and read. And I had an agreement with the lady that like, I just, I just want to sit here and read, but I, I don't want to be at home. I just, I just want to be out, right, type of thing. And I would sit there and I would read and I would have, you know, these composition books just full of random notes and a stack of books. And the lady would give me coffee, which I was eternally grateful for. And one night, a group of gentlemen pull up in, in Porsches and, and Land Rovers and all this stuff. And I'm like, what are these guys doing at Waffle House at like 1.30 in the morning? And they're all in, you know, five piece suits and the whole deal and the whole shebang. And they order their breakfast and, you know, they're, you know, tipping this waitress like a thousand dollars. And then they end up walking over to me and my back is like face towards the door. I don't want to talk to anyone. Right. And I'm just sitting there and I'm like reading my books. I'm like, you know, just trying to get my life together. It looks like I've been crying, like all the things. And the guy walks up and he says, we have an ongoing bet that you're a part of and you'll win 50% of like whatever it is. Half of us think that you're broke, broken trying to get your life together. The other half of us think that you're crazy. Which one is it? <laughs> and I end up describing to this guy and I'm like, you know, some stuff happened to me and I'm trying to figure out what to do with it and how, how to be a dad and how to be a man and finish my doctor. I like just try to do all this stuff. And he goes, Whoa, wait, wait, wait a second. Calls the rest of the guys over. He's like, tell them what you told me. And then, you know, a couple more minutes go by and he goes, do you want to come to our work and tell everybody what you told us, but then we want you to give three takeaway points that you've learned about your life during this whole thing. And I was like, yeah, I guess. Like, where do you guys work? And they ended up working at the Publix headquarters in Atlanta. Okay. So I got to go scoot down there and um, they were like, we'll, we'll give you like $300 for an hour. And I was like, $300 for an hour? Yeah. Consulting pays. <laughs> oh my God. God, yeah, I, I was having like a coronary. I was like, oh yeah. my Lord. Yeah. So I go in there and I end up talking for three hours and discussing all of these things and discussing what I've learned about the brain so far and, you know, my plans to finish up school and then, you know, back to Duke Medical School and get more neuroscience degree and all that stuff. And <clears throat> at the end of it, it's like a Friday, I think. Um, and it's like 6 p.m. and all these guys in the boardroom stayed. There's like 14 of them. And they were like, this was the best presentation and training in mental health and leadership that we've ever had. Like, what's your consulting firm's name? And I was like, what is consulting? <laughs> what, what are you even talking about? I thought you guys were like, I, cause I walked in there with like, I, I came, I had a, a graphic tee on joggers and flip flops. And I walked into this thing cause I had no idea what I was doing. Like nice. I was like, all right, yeah, okay. I'll come see it doesn't talk. matter <laughs> if you know what you're doing. And then it, they knew, yeah. They, yeah, they thought you knew what you were doing. So one of the executives in there says, hey, let me take you out to dinner. So end up taking me out to dinner. And he's like, you have a talent. You have a skill. And it's really unrefined. But the fact that you just talked to us with a net worth in that boardroom, larger than you can probably comprehend right now, and all gave us takeaways that have been in leadership and design for 20, 30, you know, longer than you've been alive, you need to refine this and design it. And I want to help you do that, but we're going to do back of the napkin stuff at dinner. And then it'll have enough action steps that you can go all the way up to your first hundred thousand. I was like, hundred thousand. Like, what am I, the president? 
And we end up doing this like back of the napkin conversation. He says, you need to refine this, 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 outline this, this, this. And you take I ended a up following of the back it. Of the napkin, you, like you heard Kelleher, you know, that's the whole, do you know the back of the napkin construct, um, Jonathan? It starts with yeah. how West was formed, you know, Houston to what, Dallas to, you know, San Antonio, right? Yes. Yeah. That's hilarious. You know, that. that's fantastic. Um, yeah. There's a picture of the napkin somewhere out in space. I don't even know. Um, Cause I have another waffle house napkin, um, which was basically like the changing moment in my life, which was I'll be better today than I am tomorrow. Um, and it's in a box somewhere and I just, I'm going to get it framed someday and just clunk it up there. Um, but anyways, he starts teaching me these things and you know, he's like, come back and we'll, we'll pay you $500 an hour. And I was like, he said, but I want you to give like a weekend. Price. And I was like, Oh my gosh, this is the most ridiculous money ever. Um, so we go and do that presentation and they pay me in like cash. And it's like, I, I don't even know what I'm doing. And the guy's like, do you know what an LLC is? And I was like, no. And he goes, okay, you got some learning to do. And so he gave me like one of his business books and said, just go through this, follow some of the steps. And I just was like, you know, going through trying to figure all this stuff out. But they were my first client in Atlanta, um, which was accidental. And then after that, I started making social media posts and I was <laughs> wildly embarrassed and I was absolutely horrific at it. Like I was so embarrassed of how bad I was on camera that I used to take my GoPro, which is the only camera I had. And I would go out in the woods where no one could see me. No one could hear me. Like, but now I'm in like a co-working space right now. And I'm like, I don't even, we're going to talk about whatever, but it's crazy how far it's the this. journey. I started it my is. reels about a year ago and you feel so foolish I, when you do them. And all of a sudden you realize the only, the only person who you have to get over is yourself. It's like yeah. recording yourself is a provocative feeling because you're now being shown to the world. It's a weird feeling, but it is possible to get over. I feel like I'm over that. You've been doing it how long? I've been doing it now five years. Um, I've been doing videos more freely now for like three. Um, and your extemporaneous ones where you go on for two, three minutes and explain concepts, you feel very comfortable. You're one of the better extemporaneous uh presenters i think on instagram you're very hugely appreciate that yeah absolutely because you are you're you've gotten really good at it because i'm learning i'm like in my first year yes it's practice it's the practice that's where and everybody gets to that point of practice where they they reach a level of attainment and they think oh that's the end of it or they reach Mm -hmm. imposter syndrome or they watch somebody that is so refined and i get the question all the time like you know how'd you get good at that and i'm like i got really bad and i got bad at being bad and then I got bad at being good. And then it's just like, it is the literal repetitions. Like, I, I don't know how else to say it. And you, you get better. To be yeah. You will. It's yeah. an inevitable thing. If you shoot 10 free throws every single day in six months, no matter what, as long as you put those 10 reps in, you're going to be better. Period. Yeah. You had I, a convincing revelation. Yeah. A really cool revelation in your recent pod, in your recent podcast. And you went through this process uh, all the pain you went through, and then you realize that the gift that you've been given, that you've been hiding, isn't for you, it's for others. Um, mm. Can you flesh that out and yeah. how you understood that and how it kind of came to fruition and why it's such a valuable lesson to learn? This is like, this is the fuel that will keep you going when you don't want to go. And it's purpose and it's mission and it's servitude. And I am a huge proponent of having to develop those things in order to 
maintain motivation. So when I started to describe a lot of these different things, I originally built this like business and accidentally like, you know, founded it because I needed money. I needed money. Right. And then suddenly you get to a point where it's like, okay, I can kind of live on this. And I'm a super minimal guy, right? Like I, I don't have a lot of living expenses and things like that. I'm just super simple. So you get to a point where it's like, it's not about me anymore. And especially when you're in like the mental health space, like it very quickly transitioned to like, I need to make money to, even if I don't make money, like one person sent me a message one time that said, this changed my life when I had like three followers and like, you know, nobody knew who I was. And they said, this literally saved my life. I've been doing it for two months now and my depression is completely gone. Like I was close to the edge. It's those type of small moments for me that it's like, I'm not doing it for me. How selfish would it be of me to say that um, I'm studying and I'm designing and I'm like doing all of these things for me. And then it turned into very quickly, I'm doing this to try to save my dad who's already gone. Hmm. And that was the heartbreaking realization of I got to save me and I'm doing that through my work. And then it's a, I have this guilt and shame about being a mental health scientist now. And I couldn't see it in my dad who committed suicide. What do you mean by that? You couldn't see it in your dad. What do you mean by that? He, we had no idea. Like when, when he killed himself, like, Oh, it was him out of the blue. Yeah. Sorry. I didn't know that he took suicide. And it was a huge thing. Um, or like, at least for me, it was a thing. I was like, how, how did I miss it? Cause it's so obvious now. Did he write a note? Didn't write a note. Oh, so you didn't know. Okay. Wow. Yeah. We had no idea what was going on. My heart breaks for you, man. That, that's rough. It's brutal. Yeah. And the hard, I think the hardest thing about that was so shortly after I was a dad mm-hmm. and I no longer had a model. I didn't have a grandpa, right? My daughter didn't have a grandpa to say like, Hey, you know, and I could watch him do some of those things and interact with it. So yeah. I had to have, you know, all the mentors and all the grandpas and all the things. And it hit that refresh, like at a sketch button for me of like, okay, if generational trauma exists and I have no models for being a dad anymore and I know what my dad did wasn't bad, but it wasn't great, I have this crazy opportunity to be different and I'm willing to do that. And we, my parenting style, I guess, is different um, and it's not the easy way, but I mean, it's effective. Wow. Speaking of your parenting, you said you were going to have, you had a crazy kind of dream kind of sequence or something about your daughter or how she oh, almost yeah. created her name. Before you um, t- describe that, that, that story and that kind of process, I would need to ask you a crazy question because this is what was asked to me. My grandma died just before my um, youngest daughter was born. And the question she, my, uh, our sister-in-law asked us was, did your daughter look a little bit like your grandmother when she was born? And it was the craziest thing. And I, we all said, absolutely. So I had to ask you, did your daughter look anything like your dad when she first was born? Uh, it's a crazy question. No, this is hilarious. And, um, no. So like my, my daughter doesn't look like me or her mom. However, my brother had his first little one uh, about a year and four months ago. And it is a mirror image of my dad. And it is like, like I like watch him and I'm just like, I look at my brother and I'm like, I'm like, he's got like all dad's like facial like stuff. Like, and I'm like, he's like, yeah, it's the worst. I feel like I'm yelling at him. Like, get off the counter stuff. Like, I'm like, well, you and your therapist enjoy that. I know me and my therapist are going to enjoy that. 
Well, talk about Phoenix. Talk about um, the crazy kind of story you were going to tell. Yeah. So I, like I said, I'm, I've been pretty scientific like most of my days and uh, I fall asleep one night finally and Phoenix isn't born yet and I'm freaking out at night. So like the night that I actually like pass out from exhaustion. Is she coming like, or is this before she was in? She's on the way. So she's Got like it. it's six months into it now. So we're, we're pushing third trimester and finally pass out and like have the most vivid dream ever that I am walking up a mountain and it's like kind of the middle of the night, kind of like dusk, right? Type of thing. It's like dark out and it's getting darker. And the more that I walk up, the more I'm like, you know, starting to stumble and like lose my way and come around this like stone wall that you would kind of see out in the Rockies. And I come around there and there's a fire and there's a, there's two logs there. And I'm like, this is super weird. Like, I feel like I'm like living this moment and I'm like, man, this is really bizarre to be out there. And then walking from a different trail comes this woman that's the same age as me with like strawberry blonde hair, these like gray eyes. And she walks up the path in like this white gown and she looks at me. Very symbolic. Very symbolic. She looks at me and I'm like looking around, like wondering what the heck is going on. And she like, screams with like you like oh like oh my gosh type of thing and runs over and like gives me like the biggest neck hug ever and she's like oh my gosh i thought it was gonna be you and she says sit 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 and we sit down and we start having this conversation of just about like life and excitement and like purpose and like favorite foods and favorite colors and all this stuff like we'd been best friends that hadn't seen each other in years And it goes to complete darkness and then the moon comes up and around and then eventually we're like looking out over the rest of this mountain range and the sun starts to come up and she goes, this has been like the best thing ever. I'm so excited that it's you and you know, it's, it's time for us to go and I need to go here right now and you need to go back the way that you came, but I'll see you sooner than you imagine. And I'm going to love you more than you can even like exist. And I'm like, Oh my gosh. And she gives me this like giant squeeze around the neck. And then I start walking back down the way. Like what the heck just happened? Like it's such a real experience for me. And I don't do not have dreams like this. And she starts going down and she's like skipping like a, like a child down this pathway. And she goes, Oh, Hey, wait, by the way, the next time you see me, my name's Phoenix. And I wake up and I'm like, uh, whoa, what was that? And I remember opening up, I was like just an incessant journaler during that time. I still am. And I ended up writing this entire thing down and I dialogued it. And I ended up telling her mom, like, I had this insane dream that I had this like woman with like this strawberry blonde hair and these gray eyes. And she's like so beautiful and so play and all this stuff. She goes, oh, that's interesting. And I was like, yeah, just nuts. So a couple months goes by and then boom, I'm like holding, holding this little baby with strawberry blonde curls, right? And these like super crazy, like green gray eyes. And everybody's like, oh, her eyes, you know, they'll fill in. They'll like, you know, get this whole thing. Cause like my whole family has like brown eyes and, and her mom ends up having like brown eyes too. So we're like, oh my gosh, the, the gray, like, where's this from? And as she gets older, she has like all this gray. But the moment that I held her and like, she's like, you know, settled and calm and like, she's just like, nuzzles in i'm like oh my gosh you're phoenix like this i i know this feeling i know this feeling this is that crazy insane feeling of turning the mountain and like seeing you like that that was you 
And ever since then, she's got this this crazy like strawberry blonde hair and these green eyes. She's five and a half, um, and it's it's just been it's been a wild journey. Wow, that's a phenomenal story. I that's, love that story. Thank you. Lucid too. That dream uh, was as you, did you take magnesium before going to bed? <laughs> Nothing. No, that was the thing. I was like, hey, like what the heck is it? Like, was it three and eight or yeah, all these different things? And like, I've had like two or three dreams like that in my entire life. And I was one of them. So how did you go down the neuroscience route? Like that's a interesting channel to take. Yeah. So even after my daughter was born and even after, you know, I started doing a lot of this, like uh, this work, I was still just like, I had so much inside of me that just needed to get processed. And for the life of me, I could not understand why, you know, therapy like really wasn't working and, you know, all of these other different things. And my original doctorate wasn't super specific at the start of it to go into neuroscience, but at the end of it, it got more designed that way. And it's because I started to understand and like, I had this like formulation of ideas come across that was, I have all of this human potential inside of me. We all do, right? I don't think that's something that we can really deny. And I think that area of us kind of lives and exists inside of the mind and the mind exists and we participated inside of the brain and that's like a limiting factor to that expression. But if I take an acorn that has the potential of a giant oak tree and I throw it on the blacktop down here in South Florida, it's not the acorn's fault that it's not being expressed. It still has that potential inside of it. It's that I put it in a unnurturing environment, right? The environment is harsh. And that was when neuroscience like really clicked for me. I was like, oh, my brain is not going to blossom when I'm stressed out, when I'm anxious, when I can't sleep, when I'm all of these different things. And it just kept clicking. And I'm like, all of the, the sadness that I'm experiencing, all the frustration, all of these different things, it is not the manifestation of me being broken. It's the manifestation of me not being put together yet. I just don't have the hindsight. I don't have the vision and I don't have the, at the time, neuroanatomy turned on to give me that insight yet. So what I am willing to do is completely abandon ship on the mental health journey that I was on before because it really wasn't working for me. I'm not saying that it doesn't work. It works for a ton of people. That's, but I'm that's, an, yeah, that's an important distinction because there are different things that work for different people. And what we tend to do is demonize the rest and say, this is the only one that works, or you shouldn't do this one. When in fact, some really weird stuff works for people and you found what worked for you. Why didn't traditional approaches work for you? What didn't work? To be honest with you, yeah. it was because I was too proud. I That's was, a good answer. Too That's immature. I was too, you know, all the things um, to sit down and say and have the conversation with these mm-hmm. therapists at the time that it was like, hey, like, how are you doing this week? I didn't want to say, oh, I, it's been a trash fire, right? I've, I've cried in the bathroom three or four times. You know, I, I'm just running off coffee for the <laughs> most part. Um, yeah, I, I feel really mad inside all the time. I was, I was too proud because that felt like failure to me if I didn't like continue to achieve or didn't like hold it together. Cause if I wasn't going to hold it together, who's going to hold it together for my daughter and all of those other things. So at the time, and I since then have, you know, gone back to therapy and done a ton of different modalities, but my what nervous was your system favorite? Was, what worked for you by going well, that's back a good to question. It. So the, the classic therapy that everybody's kind of like associated with is called CBT cognitive, cognitive. behavioral therapy. <laughs> right. yeah. yep. And it's, it's a fantastic modality 
And for mm-hmm. a lot of things that are like, you know, micro traumas, it is fantastic. However, what worked the best for me was EMDR. Um, and this type of processing um, is done by, you know, clinicians that have done uh, extracurriculars and gotten trained in this. Um, but it's really great for macro trauma events. So like trying to process things with my dad, um, mm-hmm. that modality was like, it was just complete game changer. Um and I, do, I still recommend it. How do you distinguish between macro and micro? Um, so I think micro events are like the daily stressors that kind of like mm-hmm. add up. And 80% of stress for most of us is micro trauma. Somebody cuts you off in traffic and it creates uncertainty in your survival. <clears throat> and your nervous system basically goes, oh, we need to mentally, emotionally practice this thing over and over in case it happens again. I want to be really practiced at this. That's a micro trauma that kind of happens. You have an argument with your spouse and things kind of like, you know, derail from there and your nervous system continues to practice that. But it's not creating an impact or a complete redirection of like behavioral change the way that a macro event was. So if you get a macro event that essentially blows a fuse on your nervous system, mentally, emotionally, psychologically, all of these different caveats, it'll directly change how you participate in reality, physically, mentally, emotionally, through actions and behaviors. And that's kind of what I recognize with a lot of these different macro traumas. Um, and there's, you know, psychologists out there that could probably orient these things in a better list. But for sure. me, it's overwhelming stimulation that creates behavioral change. I had a thought the other uh, yesterday, uh, and I actually posted a reel on it last night, which is most people are exhausted, not from the micro traumas, but because they're still holding on to the macros so that when they experience the micros, they're too exhausted to actually take care of it. Would you agree exactly. with that? Yeah. yeah. So the, the nervous system is not reactive and it, we're going to, I don't want us to stop using that language because it's so socially known, but your nervous system is predictive, right? Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a tremendous difference. And I was jamming on that last week on the social medias, but your nervous system is predictive because it's taking in current present stimulus, comparing it to the past. And it says, mm-hmm. not what is this? It looks at what does this look like? And when it says, what does this look like? It says, Oh, Remember last time this kind of happened and you weren't really prepared? I'm going to give you anxiety or I'm going to give you anger and frustration so that you're mentally, emotionally prepared so that we don't get as stressed out next time so that when it recurs, we could put a stop to it. So that repetition over and over. You called that overthinking um, uh, a couple episodes ago, a couple reels yes. ago. Overthinking is that exact process of predicting again and again. And that's what I needed to, you know. I need to come up with some solutions to this because I end up procrastinating a lot of things. Either somebody does a stupid thing and like they're trying to nail you for a late bill from three years ago and you have to address that, right? Or it's doing a presentation or it's doing something like getting, you know, getting even expenses done. And I, I, and that's my money, right? So I do these expenses over months and I still put that off. So help. I know I need to journalist and write it down. But tell me, <laughs> tell, no, yeah. walk us through helping people overcoming this overthinking and getting past this predictive system that our, our, our nervous system puts us into. Absolutely. So this is going to be a connection of overthinking and people that have neurodiversity. And I'm going to explain why those two things kind of go together. So you have an area of your brain called the default mode network. 
and the default mode network gets turned on when you're overwhelmed and stressed and everything else that starts to go built up around that. And it basically turns you into like an automated machine that you are watching yourself take these actions, but you're not exactly there. And it's not necessarily a bad thing, right? If you run it all the time and it's just this thing and you're constantly in this loop and you're constantly like, you know, not participating consciously in reality, then it turns into an issue. But what the issue is, is when the default mode network gets turned on, what gets turned off is the frontal cortex. And the frontal cortex has something called the task-specific network, and it has the nucleus accumbens, and it has all of these different things that drive motivation, that drive action, that drive each and one and every one of those things that we want more of in life. Discipline, right, is one of the biggest things, or motivation. Like people like, focus, discipline, motivation. How do I do those things? And it's like, if you can turn that frontal cortex on more often, you're going to be in dang good business, sir. But what the default mode network is going to try to do over and over again is take current circumstances, whether it's macro, micro events that haven't had closed loops. So they haven't had resolution yet, right? That's this is the biggest thing. So all the open loops that you have going on are running on a cycle in your head. And when you get overwhelmed and stressed, your system goes, hey, conscious brain, frontal cortex, I'm going to turn down your capacity to take action. What I'm going to do is turn up the volume on thoughts and emotions so that we can loop this thing basically over and over again. So when the default mode network gets turned on, it's running these predictions and it's showing them to you over and over and over again of like, hey, this thing that you like haven't really resolved yet, that's like a lot of conflict. Here's what I think is going to happen based on that thing that happened 25 years ago. Right. And it just runs that thing over and over again. And it's trying to practice over and over and over again. So at this point in the show, we get to have the conversation. Well, that sucks. Right. And it's like, well, yeah, that's not super great. But how? Right. How do you turn the thing off? How do you turn the frontal cortex on? And for people that are neurodiverse, you have a much more slippery switch to get distracted and turn on the default mode network. So when you get distracted and you're defocused and you're not goal-oriented, you don't know what you're doing with your time, your nervous system has open space and open freedom to basically go, hey, remember when, and it's going to use the free bandwidth that it has to practice the things that tried to kill it or that tried to move it from like society. So that's what the white ceiling syndrome really is, is your nervous system going, okay, we finally got a space. Remember your girlfriend in 11th grade that broke up with you? You're a piece of trash for that. And I'm going to run you through all the opportunities of you being a piece of trash for that until we find resolution in that because that loop was never resolved inside of your brain. And it says, okay, once that's done, let's talk about how your current girlfriend is just like that girlfriend. And then let's run that loop over and over again. And then you're like four hours into this like extravaganza of the worst movie you've ever seen in your own head. And you're like, how did I get here? How do I stop this? Right. It's two 37 in the end, like midnight, like past this, like I just need this to stop. And how you stop that is easier and harder than everyone thinks because typically the task specific network and the frontal cortex over here, when it is on the default mode network is turned off right? So we can focus, we can drive, we can be motivated. And those are beautiful things that we want to have done. We can be emotionally available, increase communication, all the things that really make us our best version. But then if we do that for an extended period of time, we easily start to get cognitive fatigue. We get burnout if we do it for periods of like weeks to months too long. And slowly 
the noise on distraction starts to go up because your nervous system's like, hey, we've been doing this for a lot. Like you dropped us into second gear on the expressway and I'm a Mazda, right? I, I am not something that can handle this. You're going to blow a piston through the hood. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start to introduce you to some of my friends. This is procrastination. What he's going to do is make sure that you don't burn out by stopping you from doing things. And then here is self-sabotage to make sure that if procrastination doesn't do his job, that you think you're a piece of trash and shame and guilt are going to slow you down. All of that to just bring you back to a nice state of keeping the meat suit alive. And keeping the meat suit alive to a neurological basis is basically creating an environment that is completely run on expectations and looping patterns of certainty. So I can wake up, I can have my coffee, I can do my nine to five job, I can come home, I can yell at my wife, I can yell at my kids, I can watch you know movies and drink beer until midnight, and I can wake up at 6 a.m., have my coffee, go to work. And it, that's the ideal life of a stressed out nervous system is to just have certainty and predictability all the live long day. But that's the matrix. Is it physiological yeah. as well? Do, by the way, that, that is probably, we've had 20 podcasts I think that that right there is just probably one of the most mind-blowing, entertaining, informative things that I have experienced. I mean, I've that is Sorry, I'm a total neuroscience geek. That's the best 5 minutes of our entire podcast history. And that I'm, was beautiful because here's why. You put it in language everybody can understand. You should do it for children because that was really well done. It and here's why. Stories, yeah. The default mode network helps us understand how to deal with trauma. And it's one of the most incredible discoveries in neuroscience ever. It's so important because so many people get locked in that state and they just cruise on low glow, their headlights are barely on, and they have no joy whatsoever. That's yeah, prison so to me. That's anagonia. So we have a literal name for that. And it's complete, utter lack of motivation towards anything. So that nothing has pleasure. Everything is great. You no longer have a favorite food. And it's called anagonia. And I've talked about that in the past because like the nervous system has become so resourceful and it's so exhausted that pleasure is expensive to it. Right. Can, like, can you imagine the level of depression that people get to be in to like experience that? Mm -hmm. And some of us, you know, have splashes of that, but like the consideration of my brain is like, man, like the nervous system is that exhausted. That mm -hmm. joy is too expensive. Mm -hmm. Happiness is too expensive. Your favorite food is too expensive to chemically bring you joy anymore. It's like, dang, what, what a smart machine. Take it back to 2012 when I lost my my house, my job, my ex-wife, and my kids. I had to move in with my sister. So very similar story. I realized, I realized last summer I've been living in survival mode for 12 years. And I was like, wow, it's possible to do that. It's possible to actually reach a state where you're coasting. And my life was always getting better, but there was no joy. And that's battery, that's, that's the pods yeah. of the matrix in the machine. Yeah. That's exactly yeah. what that is. They're living yeah, their life. You. Yep. That's absolutely right. Yeah. And that's why the matrix runs on pleasure. 
right? Like when you like look at the movies and things like that, because it sparks you back up and it fills you back up and then you're constantly chasing that, right? So when you live a life that's chasing pleasure, you have a ton of energy all the time because you're constantly chasing after the next dopamine hit, the next dopamine hit. The battery never runs out that way. And explain what happens when you keep firing a neuron. A couple different things start happening. So when we try to, let's, let's take the example that if, if you think for our listeners right now, on a piece of paper, put a circle, and then like a couple inches away, put another circle. And I want you to connect those lines and name them on the left, A, and the one on the right, B. And then down below B, I want you to have C, five or six inches a little bit lower beneath that. Now, the firing of a neuron is A to B, right? And the more that you fire a neuron, the more the nervous system goes, oh my gosh, we're using this a ton. You know what we should do for this thing that we use a ton? We should make it easier so it requires less action and less energy to push it along. And I want to make it faster, right? So it starts to cover it in something called myelin. And the more that something gets covered up in myelin, the faster it comes and the less conscious you need to be to fire that neural pathway over and over again until eventually you put your shoes on and it's like, I haven't tied my shoes in like seven years, and yet I still have tied shoes. Your nervous system creates, you know, conscious blindness to those things because, duh, this is how you tie shoes. I don't need you to think about it, right? Same thing, driving to work or driving to the office. You're like, how did I get here type of thing. You fired that neuron so much that it no longer needs your conscious awareness. But then suddenly we want to change, right? And it's suddenly we go from A, B, and then something changes in our external environment, and A accidentally fires to C, or purposefully. And then you go, oh, A to C is now an opportunity. And your system's like, whoa, wait a second. We've been drawing this line back and forth from A to B for a while. Like, are you, are you sure that you want to go A to C? Because it's kind of slow. And it's like, it's new. So like, it's going to be kind of expensive to put all this like copper wiring and myelin around that neuron. It's like, why don't we just stay with A to B, right? And then it'll try to do everything to snap you back to that old pattern because creating new patterns is not only like at times chemically, physiologically stressful, but it's costly as well. So when you go A, B, A, B, A, B, and then it's like, okay, I want to do A to C, right? I want to start waking up early, right? When you start to wake up early, the first time that you wake up early, you go A to C and it should be super uncomfortable. It should be like totally resistant. And you can, you know, mentally refine yourself to have a more positive attitude, but like your nervous system is like going to whine and kick and scream and moan and ask like, why God, why me? Like, why would you do this? And it'll complain and try to do everything in its power to sabotage you back to the original pattern. Go to bed at midnight, wake up at 7 a.m., be miserable. And then suddenly that one time it's, oh, you fired A to C neuron and that's go to bed at 9 p.m., wake up at 6 journal have conversations with your wife cook sandwiches meal prep it's like that was a lot of effort like cool for you like, good for you like attaboy you did that great we tried it one time and it was it was okay um but no more okay because it's new and it's scary and therefore must be dangerous and that is exactly what your nervous system does it's new and it's scary and therefore must be dangerous even if it's starting to pray even if it's talking to a therapist. It's new, it's scary, it must be dangerous. It's new, it's scary, it must be dangerous until you establish trust and certainty that it's not those things. And the best way to do that, because it's scary, it's dangerous, it's gonna kill us, 
that loop over and over, that's the default mode network. And the default mode network gets turned off and repatterned through awareness and action. It's the same way that I was talking about. If I take my pen and I just let it go, it's going to fall to the ground. I have no like, oh, is gravity on today? You want to have such conviction in the patterns and behaviors that you have that your nervous system goes, this is the only inevitable thing. So at 4 p.m. for me, every single day, my nervous system goes, oh, it's workout time. It's 4 p.m., right? The other options don't even exist anymore. I've made it an inevitability, and there's no other patterns that are going to run at that period of time. And you can do that with happiness. You can do that with joy. You can do that with productivity. You could be a better writer. You can be a better content creator. It's just a matter of are you willing to rinse, repeat, action, awareness, integration. Rinse, repeat, action, awareness, integration over and over again. And that's why it doesn't matter who you are or what you're doing. I guarantee, guarantee it that if you make content on your social media platform for six months every single day, which is a lot, but you can do it, or five times a week, set the goal, you will be better for it. I guarantee that you will be a better video person, more comfortable on camera, if you just put the reps in. Because it's it's science, it's psychology, right? It's A to B, A to B, oh, I wanna do something new, A to C, A to C, action, awareness, integration, oh, I need to do different action because I'm not going in the same direction that I originally wanted. Because clarity also matters. And you can get clarity from one of two ways. Go ahead. This seems to me, a self-defeating evolutionary process in our minds, unless you think the catalyst for this has been technology and, um, you know, being addicted to blue light and the phones. Tell me what you think, because what you're saying, this natural progression, if, if, if 60, 70, 80% of humanity is going through this process and going down the easier way and the rote kind of thing, then we're fucked. Excuse me. Imagine what AI will add to that. Yeah. So, to automate yeah. everything. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if the Amish suffer from this kind of um, process and these problems. No, they don't. <laughs> I mean, what, do you, what are your thoughts on um, where we started going wrong? Because I don't know if, you know, people in the early, you know, Neolithic times when they're out just hunting and gathering and getting, you know, they're hunting mammoths and they're gathering berries and they're just going through the day to day and they're drawing paintings, you know, of, of animals and gods in their, in their caves. What do you think has been the catalyst and what is your, you know, suggestion to the ether out there, how we overcome these kinds of, you know, confines we've dug ourselves into? I truly don't believe that the evolution of technology and the progression that we've had has made humanity worse. It's made contrast a lot louder. And I think it's very easy to abuse those systems and tactics but I think the abuse that we're experiencing and the uh, addiction to social media and things like that are because people don't know how to relate, connect, be vulnerable, and like have a different pathway for their mental health. Like I, I genuinely believe that like it's it's a dysregulation strategy that is the easiest thing to possibly do. I mean, like it, the statistics are pretty gross on social media. However, at the same time. How did we get here? So it's either a tool or a weapon, right? Like when I tell people like mm -hmm. how, you, how you use social media, it's a tool or it's a weapon, right? And I want it to be a tool and my tool of how I'm going to use that. And I teach people how to consume social media so it doesn't destroy your nervous system is right. you go on there with a specific task and a specific goal with a specific topic, right? 
For me, I follow one person and I typically follow one person at a time and I ingest their content and I analyze it. And when I go onto social media, I look for one specific thing or if I have a question, but if I'm going on there, I decided to turn social media not into information consumption for me because I know how bad it is. But if you're going to do it, search a topic, don't follow a thousand people, use it like a search engine. So if you want to learn more about neuroscience, sick, find three neuroscientists and then ingest their content and study it. And then if you need better dissociation or distraction pathways, some video games can be a better pathway for that, but it should be a tool um, for growth. If not, then it's a weapon against your human potential. We were yeah. talking about this last week because so about what we consume and its ability to really a fundamentally affect our, our entire energy. And that's why I don't go on Twitter. Rich goes on Twitter. That's kind of his primary thing. And mine is Instagram. I like the visual and I do do that. I've completely tailored my Instagram reels to exactly what I want. And it'll do that for you if you teach it. Yeah, yeah but it's that, it's that noise. Yeah, it's that noise yeah. of a lot of the other social media, which is the fight. Like there's an <laughs> argument about ideas. You do follow dozens and dozens of people. You're sending new stuff all the time. And I don't know how you do it because he gets- I do. I yeah. do. I do. I consume a lot of media. Yeah. I tell people and for clients that I work with that um, they're like, man, I'm on social media a ton. It's for a lot of the start of it. Like one of the prereqs for me, like doing one-on-one -on -one work is like, you got to have less than like two hours a day of social media time for me to even consider it. Cause like resetting that pathway towards motivation is hard. Mm -hmm. But like the simple tool that I tell most people is it's called Opal, right? And it'll completely murder those apps. And you can set it up into a vault that will completely hinder your capacity mm -hmm. to do it unless you uninstall the app. And it is a pain in the butt to uninstall that app because you can't get to the app store the way you normally would when it's turned on. So I post my content. I have an assistant supporting me to respond to comments. She drops my email for things that are important or podcast interviews or you know clients and things like that. And then I'm off it. Like where I want to consume content is in books or like I'm similar to you, Jonathan, that like I like video content, but I consume it on YouTube because YouTube has a specific focus. It's not giving me the flash effect of scroll mixed with a behavior, which is a very addicting thing for the system to do. It's like based on slot machine psychology is how like instant infinite scroll is set up, by the way. Um, and it's like, oh that's not good for my brain. And I have biometric data that proves it. So like a year and a half ago, I addicted myself to social media. And for a month, a month of it, I was like, okay, the first thing I'm going to do in the morning is I'm going to scroll instead of like doing my morning routine, I'm going to scroll for 20 minutes. Right. And I was like, okay. And then, you know, how bad is that going to be? And at the end of the day, I want to do it for like 45 minutes or like whatever the heck it is. Right. And after like a month of this, my sleep went down significantly. My, my done tasks went down significantly. Like my error rate in writing emails, like presentations, like it was atrocious. And then I was like, okay, how do I unaddict myself? Really had to make a shift and change in how I was choosing to participate in. And that's where like discipline and focus comes in. Because when you're doing something, it's compensating for something else every single time. So right now you and I are having a conversation, which means I can only do one thing at this period of time. If you're doing social media, what are you not doing that you could be doing? And like most people are like, oh, I want to start a business. I want to get out of this job. How many hours are you on social media? Because like most people are four hours a day, like three to four hours a day. 
right, which is insane in these little intervals, times seven, almost 30 hours, right? Like, what could you do for 30 hours? Like, you could get a pilot's license in a month doing that. Change and shift those habits. And, like, I just don't create the opportunity for me to have it anymore. Like, don't go grocery shopping when you're hungry. And, like, make sure that social media apps have, like, app blockers on them. Yeah. What are your thoughts on um, meditation, um, Chris? Lots. I got a lot of thought on meditation. Um, meditation is designed for agitation. It's not designed for peace. Okay. And I, I need people to desperately understand that because the failure rate on people trying to meditate is exceptionally high because they go into it and they're like, this is going to create serenity. And then it's like a like metal rock band concert in there. And they're like, you know what? This is not for me. Thank you very much. And it's just terrible, just terrible. So what I would tell people is that when you create a stage of silence, you invite characters to act out on it. And that's what most people experience as they start to do that. But the point of meditation is to observe and not participate. And this is where I, to this day, can meditate about 15 minutes a night. But if you want the benefits of meditation, but you want it gamified, I would start to do neurofeedback instead. So neurofeedback is going to do a lot of similar things of like turning on the frontal cortex and starting to like orient your nervous system and like create peace, but it gamifies it in a way that'll change the struggle of it. So the silence is a massive discomfort, and especially in a world where you can get on your phone and doom scroll for for always. That silence is probably one of the most uncomfortable things. Like if I asked like 95% of people that I interact with on a daily basis, could you sit in a room alone for an hour? Most of them would say, no, 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 no. With my phone, like with the, with a book, with, with the, with it, no, on the floor, don't fall asleep. Just sit there and like, look at the wall. Could you, and that agitation is so pronounced now because the contrast of constant stimulation is never ending. Like there's, there's no stop to like what you can consume and how you can consume it. And like a couple of years ago, it was even better because like the battery would at least die on these things. Now I got like a 48 hour battery on this bad boy. And it's like, well, if the opportunity is there, but I have Kindle on my phone. So I read like six books like a week or a month, six books a month right now. Um, and I consume infinite amount of articles on there. And like, I, I am constantly reading. So like, this is my adversary. Like I, I am good with this thing because I know how to use it and it's not using me. Yeah. I think that's rare, but again, this is kind of your practice and, um, you know, I, I think well, all- we, we only have 12 years yeah. with a device like this in our history, in our yeah. entire history, we're trying yeah. to figure yeah. out its effects. And as a neuroscientist, what is your take? It's not good. What's your take on so it's it's inevitable and it's unstoppable. So we better learn to befriend it, right? It's like the ego. Would we all be better without an ego? It's not going to go anywhere. So the contemplation is useless at that point. But what you can do is learn to befriend it. Technology is not going to go away. So starting to define it with like, oh, is it a good or a bad thing? It doesn't really matter because it's going to be inevitably there. So what if we just learn to befriend it instead? Are you using technology or is technology distracting you? 
most of the people out there, I'm just going to say, open up your settings and just show me how many hours per week you're on social media. And this should make you uncomfortable, right? Like when I go do like uh, general consults for like the general public, say, all right, bust your phone out, right? Go to your settings. Let's talk about screen time. Who's over two hours a day? Who's over three hours a day? Who's over four hours a day? Five hours a day? Six hours a day? Seven hours? I had somebody that was on social media like 14 hours a day. I was like, you must have a massive media company. And they're like, oh, no, not really. It's just for pleasure. And I'm like, okay, we got to talk then because like that's not okay. So teaching people the bounds of what that is and how to respect it as a tool is something I, I think is a huge step forward in our capacity. So my daughter, like a, just to give a quick example, um, my daughter doesn't have an iPad and our TV lives in our garage. Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday – I get the TV out at 5.30 p.m. and we watch a movie, right? That's our movie days. And then once in a while, I will let her learn how to like use the keyboard and play on the iPad, but she's not playing games that are just these infinite loop games. She's using it as a tool so that when she goes to kindergarten and they're like, oh, if she had any experience with like uh, development apps on, you know, whatever. And I'm like, oh, baby, do you want to show them how to, she knows how to use a computer, right? But she doesn't know how to play games. So she has been molded and adapted, and I'm hoping learn to respect technology and have an imagination to go play. Like she, like a couple of weeks ago, found a feather in our backyard and a stick. And I swear to God, this little girl played with that feather and that stick for like six hours that day and like four hours the next day. Like she still has her imagination because it's not being constantly filled with things that I think are 90% garbage. Well, I think that's partly what it does is it takes away our imagination because it's always thinking and visualizing for us. The thought is always it does your thinking rather than using our own intuition and imagination. Well, it's it's in our culture today. Think about all the Disney films. There's not a lot of original content. The Mandalorian is a spinoff of Star Wars. Um, They're doing new mermaids and everything else is a recapitulation you look you look back and you go oh my god the best rock and roll was between 1969 and 1971 right so i mean there's this is this is across the the spectrum right movies are being repurposed music's being repurposed taylor swift is even bringing stuff from like 10 15 years ago that's been repressed and she's bringing that to the surface now that she can because of legal (laughs) rights but i mean i mean that that's just that and that's a macro version of what we're doing you know in our individual selves, right? Yeah. Yeah. And like it, it gets a really fascinating conversation to look at success patterns in people too, because like some of these uh, extraordinary books that are out there, like I, I'm listening right now because I can't have the capacity to read it. Um, Frederick Nietzsche and his concepts. And I'm like, oh my gosh. This is the most I, – I can't – why are people not talking about this? That was in like the yeah. 1800s. So like all of this information that is complex, that requires time and attention and contemplation, society has like kind of thrown it away for instant gratification, right? They don't want to have the capacity to um, talk about some of these things, so they'll rinse and repeat. And the same thing goes with culture and the same thing goes with music, like – the best music that I personally love to go enjoy would be like musicians that are in like jazz pockets, right? Live is always better energy. Yeah. Yeah. And they're going off this like free intuitive play. And I'm like, y'all are geniuses. Like my brain just explodes when I watch these guys play like piano and trumpet and all of these things. And I'm just like, 
oh my gosh, the fact that y'all are orchestrating this and have like this weird group thing going on, like, I, can I stick you in an fMRI and like take a picture? Like, I just, just just stay there for a second. Like, it's fascinating. Unified theory, right there. Unified field going on. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Chris, what are you doing now? What are you doing to, you, you said you've built a couple companies. What are you doing to help people? Yeah. So right now, you know, I still run these, these social media channels. We really fired them off a lot during the pandemic to continue to build that out. And our goal there is to provide science-based self-care for self-regulation. <laughs> Say that five times fast. Um, and the reason to do that is to give people a certain anchor that is predictable. The outcomes are predictable. If you do these things over, you will get results. It's, it is a pretty near guarantee if you go do some of those things. And then once you build up that confidence, you build up that skill set, those are periods of times where you can start to dig a little bit deeper into the emotions and like the human error and traumas and things like that. But let's refine you up some skills. So I've got those social channels and I, I run some general public groups too. Um, one of them is a biometric group where I teach stress management. Um, and I show analytical results using um, the Aura Ring and a couple other devices. Uh, and then after that, I, I kind of still go out to larger companies and small businesses too. And I teach self-regulation through management consulting. So I'll go through and I'll start to introduce self-regulation and self-care to management staff um, that might be overworked and burnt out and frustrated and starting to provide some tools so that people don't have cognitive fatigue and can still go home to their families and connect with them without being completely exhausted. And then I have a media company that is helping people create uh, conscious, healthy business systems for creators, essentially. So the way that it took me a long time to start building content, like, hey, let's sit down. We're going to build you out a strategy, back of the napkin type of thing. And all you do is if you rinse and repeat this strategy, it's going to build you up to phase two and then take phase two napkin and go to phase two. Um, so I build out small business systems for that. And I also do some advisory work for different science boards and different businesses as well. Nice. How do people find you on Instagram? All of my stuff everywhere is at Dr. Chrisley, D-R-C-H-R-I-S-L-E-E. -E. Um, that's my website. That's TikTok. It's Instagram. It's podcast. It's it's all over the place. Nice. So uh, I'll close with this question. How, what would you say to that younger self? Is it six years ago, 2016, seven, eight years ago? What would you say to him? Yeah. You want to know the honest to God truth? Somebody asked me this a while ago. What would I say to him? And I wouldn't because he was so stubborn and so frustrated <laughs> and so mad at the world, I don't think it would have mattered. What I would have done is hand him a book and hand him a journal and say, keep doing it. Because that was all I thought I needed at the time and it served me so well. And I would have just acknowledged his progress and you know, hoped that he continued to like celebrate the small wins. Do you ever have a moment of having your own practice or do you think you made the right choice? Um, no, there's not a day that goes by where I'm like, I should have opened a practice. Um, that nice. never occurs to me because even right now, I'm so blessed. I can work four or five hours a day, and yeah. that's like a huge work day for me. And then I can go pick my daughter up from school on the bike every single day. We can go to the coffee shop, and she can have hot chocolate, and we can talk about our life. And like, I'm never going miss to miss a dance class. I'm, never, I'm not going to say never. I'm not going to miss a lot of those things, right? Because like I control the schedule and like business will never trump her.
ever. Like there's nothing that will ever be so important. Like Joe Rogan hits me up. He's like, Hey, you should come out on like the 16th. I'm like, my daughter's got soccer practice. So like, I appreciate that. But like, we're gonna have to find a different time. Like that is the thing. Cause I cannot get that age back. She's never going to be five years old in seven months in two days ever, yep. ever again. Yep. It's yep. amazing how that might be different. If, um, if, the woman who won't be named stayed in the picture and your dad had um, hung in there longer and how that might have changed things, right? And so one of the things, um, and call it the universe, it, 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 I don't want to call it a gift. It's something that happened that formed the way things are. I think your daughter's going to be absolutely incredibly blessed because of that. And I think um, I've just really appreciated this journey, um, this intellectual um induction, this real life induction, this experiential kind of thing. I it's been a great episode and I really um, appreciate and looking forward to more conversations. I'm in the coaching business myself, um, but we do more performance-based coaching. So if you're familiar with the International Coaching Federation, my organization, Coach Hub, we provide, um, you know, coaching services digitally, you know, through a, um, an app, you know, with organizations like Carnival, you know, in Florida, um, you know, massive, you know, manufacturing organizations. So I love the coaching element of things. Yours is a little bit different angle. And I, I love the uniqueness of it. And I think it actually has a lot of amazing um, applications. So this has been a Chris, great- Chris, I would rec, uh, you're not coaching people? Not, um, not yeah, I, yeah, I coach here and there. Um, it really depends on the individual. Um, so like- I, I get that. I love coaching more than anything else, I think. And mm -hmm. typically it's reserved for like entrepreneurs and things like that. Um, just based on hours, right? So like if mm -hmm. my yeah. max is like four hours a day for the most part. So like four, so I got like 16 slots, right? Um, mm -hmm. If that's maxed out capacity, but doing that versus, you know, going in and giving presentations or doing consulting work, um, it, it's just a trade-off. So I do with the right people, um, but I also have, you know, a community that is really supportive for a lot of those things too. I th so just as a encouragement, I think you would be a fantastic coach because I watch your reels whenever they come out and you're a great teacher. You make things very accessible. That's why I love your reels. You take complex ideas and you make them simple to understand. That's very powerful. So I agree. And I think you could do it one on one, but maybe your best way is to do it for the audience. I, I think you're definitely yeah. on the right path. I think you made the right choice because you're good at it. So well done. I hugely appreciate it. Yeah. So, all right. Uh, thanks everyone for this. This is one of my favorite episodes. Honestly, we keep saying that we keep saying that. And Chris, thank you. Uh, you were my first invite and you're finally here. And I so appreciate you being with us. This is one of my favorite conversations and I wish you absolutely the best. Rich, any final words? No, I can't uh, add to that. Uh, appreciate uh, just your storytelling. Um, that That's the gift that you have. You've got the knowledge and you're taking the theory that you've learned and you've applied it into real life. What And sometimes dream state analysis, which is just, I think, uh, a very powerful thing. So anyway, um, thank you so much. And everybody out there, have a great weekend and looking forward to perhaps having you back on um, in not too distant future. Chris, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. See you, everyone. Much love, it. Much love everybody. Cheers. All right.